0: All right, this is Finchy Place. I'm Crispy Chicken, and I'm here with...
1: Suspended Reason.
0: That's right. And today we're talking about how games are the new maps. And we're going to start with some examples instead of theorizing about any kind of random bullshit. So, suspended. Yeah. Is it me or you?
1: I can take it away. I got an example. Uh, Just a heads up, I'm down in Mexico right now, and it's about 90 degrees, but my feels like on my uh, iPhone app is about a 98 because of the humidity. So I think this might be a low energy pod, but I'm going to try my best for you, the listeners. Um, I uh, the so I want to kick off with a, a little example. So when we were flying down here uh, on the plane, they uh, basically, I don't know, Viva aerobus are our, uh, our, our airline basically just truly randomly seated people. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, I don't know what the algorithm is that, you know, like your standard U.S. airline uses, but like there's a strategy to either spacing people apart or like, you know, working through the rows and putting people in ends or middles. This was just random. So there would be kind of like clusters where like six people were sitting together in a row and then there'd be tons of empty rows. Um and so uh, me and Nico, you know, we're, we're trapped basically, despite buying tickets together on opposite sides of this row on the uh, the end seats. And there's, you know, multiple totally empty rows in front of us. And there was this moment, you know, right before takeoff, where basically like we caught each other's eyes, uh, you know, made eye contact, caught each other's attention, and then looked at the, the empty rows in front of us. Uh, And it was just kind of a nice, I think, example or encapsulation of how situated pointing is and how much of communication is just about pointing within like a very limited space of possibilities and how um, big a deal it is that uh, we're basically aligned in thinking. Like there was something that was very obvious and on both of our minds um, that we could just very quickly point to with just a glance at the right thing. And I think that happens a lot, especially in kind of intimate relationships where people start syncing up their, their mental states. But
0: I agree. And I almost think that's a pretty robust definition of intimacy, that like when you have that much shared attention and you can make very fine distinctions with very little data, that is intimacy. And it's hard for me to imagine intimacy without that.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I and think in the past I've thought about intimacy as like this kind of slow process of mutual disarmament, where you basically agree like not to defect on each other, and you have enough kind of iterated rounds that uh, you can enter into like really high trust situations. But that is definitely that kind of communicational situation. Is definitely either a byproduct or a big part of it. Yeah, I and I
0: agree with that definition too. I mean, I think there are many ways of basically looking for. The signs and symptoms and causes, and they're kind of all interrelated in this eco-process. But I, I won't go too far into that because I'll share my example.
1: Yeah, let's So hear.
0: there's this, con. So I work in natural language processing, which I'm almost a little bit nervous to admit because I guess I'm partially de-anonymizing myself. But that's life.
1: How big's your field? And how many people do you think are in it total? Hmm. Well, it's like, of of
0: people are partially and whatever, but I would say maybe four or 5,000. And that includes people who are like NLP, ML, um, and, you know, do a lot of things that in between fields, but are like enough in NLP that they're in NLP.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, of course, you know, it's not uniformly random. Uh, there are a lot of giveaways uh, about who I am, but that that's life, I guess. Um, anyway, the conferences in NLP have a rule that you can't post about your paper that you're submitting publicly within the month before submission. We call it the archive deadline because everyone puts their preprints on this website called archive, A-R-X-I-V. Theoretically, the X is supposed to be a Chi Greek letter because, you know, the pretensions of academia. But... I think what's interesting is this has created a lot of behavior. For instance, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people post their paper right before the archive deadline and then make a really big PR push, even though people didn't use to make huge PR pushes before that, but it kind of encourages you to because there's this limit and people suddenly perceive the scarcity. Um, and now it's become a tradition and now you have to compete. And actually... Um, my girlfriend was telling me about this concept that's become popular to discuss in her circles, um, in Chinese online culture, called involution. Hmm. Which, it's I actually don't know how connected this is to the uh, English definition of the word. At least I've never seen it used that way, but it is an English word. Um, but her definition is it's the process, like for example, you know, let's say in um a, a movie theater, a basketball game, where. One person stands up to see better and then mm. other people start standing up in order to see better past the person. And suddenly everybody's standing up yeah. and no one is better off, right. but you can't sit down or you'll kind of ruin it for yourself.
1: Do you think it's fair to call that, like, do you think uh, in English we'd call that a red queen situation or do you think there are subtle differences right. that matter?
0: That's exactly what I said. That's so funny that you should mention that. I There's a startling resemblance. But no, I don't think it's quite a Red Queen situation because mm. it doesn't necessarily evolve, right? It might be pushed to some limit. Mm, mm-hmm. And of course, Red Queen situations can happen that way too. But I think it's a much more specific idea of basically almost everybody holding everybody else hostage in a group situation, which I think is slightly different. Right, the Red Queen right, the hypothesis.
1: right. Hmm. Well, that's really cool. Involution is what she called it.
0: Yeah, Involution, which... Hmm. In English, when I looked it up, means like the shrinking of an origin, or, or sorry, an organ, like a bodily mm. organ, as part of a decay process. So mm. I don't know where that definition comes from, but it might be in some subfield that I just didn't find.
1: Interesting, cool. That's great. All right. Well, I uh, should we get into our main topic, which is kind of an extension of last week. Let's do it. We're talking, I guess, discursive games, um, discourse as warfare.
0: So. I was just reading um, Suspended's work about how discourse is a game. And so a lot of this is going to be essentially paraphrasing from that. But it's something that we've gone back and forth on for a while, which I think is essentially when you say something, you're trying to get something done. It's a move in a game because you want to do something. And generally, there's been this kind of mythos of communication as professing beliefs, even though it's pretty hard to find a natural situation, situation where... You're actually just professing a belief rather than, you know, professing a belief in order to imply a desired action or professing a belief to show group identity or just professing a belief because it'll help people decide where to go to dinner. Um, All communication has a cost. And like the default cost is the attention of the person you're listening to, which is certainly not free. Right. If you waste someone's time all the time saying kind of lots of BF they don't care about, then they won't talk to you anymore and your relationship will suffer. So I think the major point is that discourse is a game because you're trying to get things done. There are costs to moves. There's all kinds of things like coalitions, etc. And And more than anything, it's the ritual practices of the game and the rules of certain situational contexts that tend to form discourse, like that tend to form the most accurate patterns that we can identify in discourse.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's huge. I mean, I think actually... I was reading, along with Hazard, and and maybe you took a look at it as well, but uh, I really like Dave Chapman's recent, uh, well, I recently came across his essay from uh, In the Cells of the Eggplant on Meaningful Perception. Um, And I think the two things that he points out about perception, which I think can be said about a lot of things, he says it's contextual and it's purposive. Uh, Is that how you pronounce it? Full of purpose. Purposeful. Um, trying to, you know, get something done, essentially. Um, and I think that's also basically the two big parts of of communication um, that oftentimes get left out, especially when, I don't know, I don't know why people have formalist inclinations. I don't know if that's cultural and that's kind of like the remnants of Platonism and, and other ideologies, um, or even just new criticism and close reading. Um, or it's uh, an ideology of convenience and simplicity, and there's just kind of something baked into our cognition or just simple cognition in general that's kind of platonist or formalist. Definitely, if, uh, once you start trying to get rigorous about language and communication, it seems like you have to be thinking, one, about what people are trying to get done and to the context in which they're embedded. Uh, And I think, you know, to the credit of postmodernist, poststructuralist types, I think they really do stress this. There's kind of this constant situated um, meaning idea that is getting bounced around. Um, I guess maybe one thing I'll just quickly add. I think the the two big parts that I thought were crucial in understanding discourse as a game uh, is one who you're responding to and to who you're, you know, basically who is judging you, who you talking to. Um, I don't know. I don't know why I think those, that, uh, that carving uh, is in some way meaningful, you know, is a meaningful joint uh, for communication, but it felt like it when I was writing it. Um, and it feels like a lot of the essays that I've come across that I found interesting about communication. You know, touch on some of those things, uh, especially I, if I think of some of like uh, Slate Star Codex's uh, kind of interesting essays on discourse, which I think are partially the origin of John Nurse's aristological work. You know, why do people end up getting driven to extremes? Uh, why do people uh, end up taking different positions depending on who they're talking to? Um, why can't you understand, um, you know, an utterance unless you understand who it's responding to?
0: Absolutely. So I want to comment on why who you're talking to and what you're trying to get done is a good carving for thinking about communication. Uh, The basics are that I think it implicitly encodes a notion of cognitive load economy or cognitive economy, maybe for short, which is that we can't think about exactly what our words mean in every scenario. So what we tend to do is narrow down. And we narrow it down by thinking about our roles in a certain situation and by our relationships with people. And within the relationships, there are certain ways things are and there are certain things we want to happen or certain things, we, ways we want things to be. And I think this is just inherent in that any system where you kind of have interpersonal relationships could be broken down this way it might be more or less awkward but this is always a meaningful way to view it like even if the system thinks of with completely different abstractions i think this is always kind of an end result of a system of interpersonal interactions um but i think it's actually very close to the way people think about it because people are essentially self-centered and i don't mean that from a moral standpoint i just mean it from like an egocentric you're thinking about how you're going to get through life kind of way. And your relationship with someone kind of emerges from what you want out of them and what they want out of you and how those end up interacting. And I think one of the big criticisms I have about most philosophizing around meaning has to do with the fact that it kind of assumes that you have as much time as you want to just hang around and think about what your words mean and make them mean what you want, as if wanting didn't happen as a function of time. And I think um, from this book, Reengineering Philosophy for Limited Beings by William C. Wimsett, has a great quote um, just in the introduction uh, where he's talking about philosophers have established ways of creating order, working from a few key idealizations about decision making and rational or logical inference. And then just a little bit later, he says, So is this a problem? Unfortunately, yes. These particular idealizations demand unrealist degrees of knowledge unlimited inferential powers, or both. And I think that's really the issue, right? That people are not working with a lot of cognitive resources. They're working with whatever you can do in kind of five seconds before you have to respond to someone. And so you're going to factor it. And the most meaningful, easy way to factor it is to have a model of the person you're dealing with. And if you don't deal with them a lot, to have a model of their role, like, you know, I'm talking to a cashier, I'm talking to a teacher, I'm talking to my boss. Um, Now, you usually have a relationship with your boss, but what happens when you're new to a company? You rely on the role. Um, Right. And then thinking, well, what's going to get done in this situation? Because obviously, that's the entire reason you're there. So I think even though it might seem like this carving is arbitrary, I almost think it's unavoidable as long as you assume that people have goals and that interpersonal relationships are mostly about individual interactions, rather than some overlying system that determines how interpersonal relationships happen, which there are things like that. For instance, like in the army, there's a much more clear notion of your relationship with people, even people you don't know, because of the status of the hierarchy. And I think you do see in those cases, communication looks somewhat different.
1: Yeah, it's true, though I think it's also worth, you know, there's that great C.S. Tolkien in a ring essay where he's talking about, you know, the other order or this kind of secondary, um, this, the secondary social hierarchy that exists in addition to the hard hierarchy of the military. And I think the example he gives is from Tolstoy and, um, there's just the scene where, uh, you know, some kind of lowly lieutenant. Um, walks in and, and actually ends up interrupting or given priority over um, you know a much higher ranking general. Um, and it has to do with, you know, I think the the colonel who is in the room is either old college buddies with um, the lieutenant, or they have some kind of shared class background, or they're somehow both aristocratic. And that this totally, this, uh, this inner ring, Tolkien calls it, this kind of s- informal social system has as much or more power as, um, you know, the formal military system. Um, and you know, I think that's something people forget. And I think that comes out, uh, especially in you know, anarchist texts and stuff, talk a lot about how much of um, social organization happens because of informal social rules and social accommodation versus the kind of hard coded um, legal deontologies that are out there, which oftentimes are more just scaffolding that people either you know build on top of or fall back on when pressed, but but oftentimes not the main structure.
0: Agreed. Notice that this essay you're referring to had to use an example from literature, and it didn't have to. But I think one of the reasons we rely so much on examples from literature is because they're examples that everyone can go look up and decide for themselves. And somehow there's this issue with using examples from personal narrativization, and people cite things about bias or whatever. But I think it's more than that, which is I think If you take an example... They're almost unfalsifiable, right? right?
1: In a weird sense.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I think when you take an example from literature, there's this assumption that, well, that's all there is to that scene because it's a work of fiction and therefore it is complete even if the realistic thing it's pointing to would have had more details that it has to do. But I think there's this issue where we kind of conflate this like notion of, oh, it's for a different purpose with kind of disinterestedness of literature, as if all the examples that we would need would be in literature. And this has created this kind of scarcity of examples of certain situations which literature doesn't care about or which there's not literature that's widely read enough that we could use or that we wouldn't know where to find it. And I think this gets to the problem of examples you and I talk about a lot, which is there needs to be some way to basically almost fictionalized examples into idealized settings that are no longer the example in your personal narrative, but that people can make individual judgments about. And of course, it's never going to be a perfect encoding of the real situation. But perhaps what's more important is it allows people to meaningfully argue about what kind of situation that was and to talk about what details should have been described in a way that they do about literature, but that people somehow don't allow themselves with personal narrativization because it's assumed that if I'm telling you a personal narrative, there are certain rituals about how we have to discuss it that actually make it difficult to use as an example.
1: Yeah, totally. I think that's totally right. Yeah, I mean, we you know we've talked about it before and we'll talk about it again, but uh, I I do think uh, you know examples are the lifeblood of the inexact sciences. I also think um, you know if we're thinking about, I mean, we were talking a little bit about extending this who you're responding to and who you're being judged by frame to other interactions. But I think if we think about it through the games frame and think about the superset as games and not communication for a second, um, I think it becomes clear that this who you're being judged by um, has this kind of objective subjective access uh, from rules to um, you know personal judgment and preference um, that is meaningful because you know if I'm thinking about a game of basketball, um, you know there is a sense in which you know definitely the game state always matters. You know, the history of what has come before is always huge because it provides, you know, the affordances and constraints and determines, you know, whether a given move is meaningful. So a big three-point shot, um, you know, means something very, very different depending on what the score is. Um, If the team is down 20, it means basically nothing, Um, especially if the team is down 20 and there's a minute left. Um, There's this whole concept of garbage time um, in basketball, which is essentially the time in which, um, it's just assumed that the other team can't climb out of the hole that the other team has dug for them. And, uh, typically the winning team will start subbing in bench players. And there's this nice ritual actually where, um, first a team will concede defeat and they'll sub out, you know, some of their players saying, oh, this game's pretty much over. And then the other team will sub out theirs. And, uh, from then on, it's basically the benches that, that play out the game. And there's no real concept that, uh, either team is going to really change, change the direction. And so points scored during garbage time are they're garbage. They're meaningless. Um, whereas points scored at a different point of the game are, are very meaningful. And um, I guess in some sense, maybe getting at the game state is just getting at a way of, is a way of getting at the opportunities um, that are possible in the game at a given moment in terms of people's goals. Um, and so what opportunities are available are determined by the game state. Um, But that maybe seems more core to me than the part about judging, which is definitely the case in human affairs, that that kind of subjective judgment is crucial, but in games generally, maybe not.
0: Agreed. And I think actually this example points at one of the things that's been difficult to model, which is our ability to mathematically model decision making is actually pretty bad at modeling discrete decision making. When, when there's discreteness, things are often nonlinear in a funny way, where it's like, oh, suddenly points don't matter. And so people are using a, a completely different calculus, even though most more naive or straightforward models, you could say of like how people should play a basketball game, wouldn't have people kind of suddenly start giving up. And there is some question about whether that's actually a rational behavior or not, and whether kind of give up people give up games that they could have won. Mm-hmm. But still, I'm always suspicious of the idea that people are largely on on average, even in a certain situation, irrational. I think usually it's a correct version of their economic kind of uh, expenditure, that they're, that they're economic and how they spend energy and time, but that there's kind of larger goals they're usually not modeling. And I think one of the reasons it's so difficult to deal with is because people make decisions and switch to modes. And the modes there have to do with kind of cognitive switch that people have invented. It's not inherent to the game, but it allows them to have good cognitive economy and not worry about decisions constantly and basically kind of waste all this cognitive energy. And I feel like we don't have any good way of representing that in our models. They're all very continuous over the decision space. And that's one of the reasons why they're still very bad at actually predicting human behavior most of the time, except in the aggregate where things do tend to smooth over.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's uh, definitely true, or, or the that's my bias as well, I guess I should say, um, in terms of human rationality. Um, I mean, it gets talked about a lot. The, the Metis versus episteme frame is big in, you know, either rationalist or post-rationalist circles, but also kind of anarchist status circles and then libertarian circles. Uh, you know, usually that that frame, which I, I think comes from James C. Scott. I know Sam is da- has changed that. I think he prefers techne versus episteme. But, um, you know, this idea basically of like local evolved knowledge that people build up versus this kind of technocratic from afar expert rational judgment. Um, and even though, you know, it usually gets talked about in terms of intervention, I think the diagnostic um, element is there as well in terms of there's this kind of long, uh, bias, I think, which is a funny word to use, uh, since we're talking about JDM, but in JDM in behavioral economics, I think there's a strong bias towards assuming irrationality and assuming that the researchers, um, have the kind of objective perspective in a way that frequently turns out to be wrong. And it's great. We're talking about basketball because hot hand is like the, um, the case I think that, that exemplifies this hubris and, um, you know, a bunch of researchers come in and I think it's Kahneman and Tversky. I think it's, you know, canonical. This isn't second tier researchers. These are the guys. Uh, I think they do an analysis of people shooting performances and they, they decide that hot hands, essentially streaky shooting, uh, doesn't exist. Um, which is insane. Um, it's a really crazy position to take. And I think you could only take it if you're not an athlete and essentially, um, But they're really, uh, they came in as outsiders and they didn't realize how kind of richly situated and contextual, um, you know, hot hand stuff is in basketball. So they took, you know, some aggregate stats about shooting performances in order to determine that shooting was essentially random or stochastic. and. Uh, But they of course didn't take into account um, whether streaky shooters started getting uh, doubled up or tripled up on defense, which is a huge part of the game. As soon as people get hot, they get triple teamed and their shooting performance goes down, right? Like there's this way that the the system already has uh, ways of maintaining equilibria. and they don't account for that. And so they think that there's this kind of natural shooting equilibrium and really it's the system or players in the system reacting to an existing phenomenon, the hot hand, um, and and balancing it out. Or, for example, there are these things called heat checks. You know, when players get streaky, they actually get more and more confident and they start taking harder and harder shots. So their shooting difficulty goes up as they get streaky. Um, in part because they're getting double teamed, you know, they're getting played harder, they're getting defended at the half instead of at the three point line. There are all these adjustments that people are making that that change the shooting percentage. And if you come and you just look at the aggregate stats, you might look at Oh, well, people, you know, they're hot, and then they cool off, and it's all random. Uh, But there's a lot of really sensitive contextual stuff that's happening. And uh, I don't know, I mean, I think that's a rich example, too, for the reason of, you know, if you want to understand the system, you have to understand how how components adjust to itself. Otherwise, you'll think that, you know, certain phenomena aren't real um, when really they're just being mitigated. Um,
0: Absolutely. And I think there's a few things there. Probably the most important to me is that almost all human social systems rely heavily on negative feedback and in systems with negative feedback, it's often very hard to isolate a single variable and to know you've isolated a single variable. And there are ways of thinking about doing this. It's not an unstudied problem, but I still feel that many attempts to measure correlations in these spaces are extremely naive. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons I mistrust a lot of research on uh, human social situations and behavior. I think the other thing, is that we have to realize that researchers are in a game and they're mostly selling research to other researchers. They're not selling it to basketball yeah. players. And so this really comes back to our issue of who are you talking to? What do you want from them?
1: And, and you know, I mean, again, this is a, a situation in which we're playing signal corrective games and, and maybe this is a good way to get back to signals and correctives. But, uh, I think it's, you know, it's, obviously there are examples of kind of statistical intervention and in sports doing incredibly well. Moneyball is the classic example where an outsider can come in and throw some fancy statistics at the problem and out GM, um, pretty much everybody in the game. So there's definitely like institutional rent seeking that's happening at every level. And I don't think you should be naive about trusting local knowledge because of all these rent seeking practices or the kind of credentialism that, that happens. Um, Or just other lack of incentives or feedback, you know, just lack of mechanisms for getting good local knowledge, um, like you're saying. But uh, definitely, it seems like the bias in a lot of spheres that we operate on is that, uh, you know, academia can come in and rationalize things. And I think that is uh, often naive, like you say.
0: Agreed. And I think this is actually a pretty good place to talk about why we're saying games are the new maps. And so I'll just say to me, the point of the map territory distinction is to say that we as humans want representations that can tell us a lot without us having to care about certain kinds of details and that's one of the reasons why you'd want multiple maps and you know you need multiple views and things and i won't get into that but i think it's pretty clear that there's a lot of literature about that and it's a lot about cognitive representations so humans can do things and i think that's fair i don't think that's not true but i think it's almost like trying to study board games by looking at the pieces in the rule books that there are these rituals about games that are unwritten, that aren't just individual cognitive tools. They have to do with how the reflexive system ends up working out. And often this is kind of reflected in the game's rules, Um, but it's hard to see it until you see games play out and you're like, oh, like in chess, right? Like the rule of empassant, which was like specifically designed to balance the game and make it better because there was this feeling of kind of imbalance in the use of pawns and white and black and things like that. Uh, I'm not an expert on chess, so please forgive me for having a totally bad take on empassant. But I think the point is that a map is always part of a game in human life, right? We're always trying to get things done and every social situation we end up having certain rules which aren't like unbreakable rules usually but rather they're how things are done over a number of times they're what you expect this kind of mutual future modeling that suspended reason um has brought up before and just the fact that that's predictive of how things are going to go next time creates some kind of rule set that we all deal with but we deal with actively instead of viewing it as kind of a map we're saying, hmm, how are things kind of going to bend today? Much more like starting a board game and thinking about your opponent and how they're playing out the game and how they've played before. So I think the reason why games are the new maps is because they reflect a kind of reflexivity and history that is much more reflective of human behavior and especially social behavior, which I think is really most of human behavior.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, it's interesting that the you know uh, the map and territory metaphor is so big in like less wrong rationalist circles. Um, you could, I think, attempt to psychologize the whole thing and say that um, I mean, this idea of like trying to jointly build an accurate representation of the world might be something that they're up to, and I think that's debatable and that's an interesting topic whether they're actually up to that or whether there are vested interests in play and, and how they build those rep- representations. I mean, obviously there are always vested interests. Um, the question is how prominent are they? Should they be the signal or should they be cor- the corrective? Um, and I think it's possible that with, you know, less wrong rationalists, um, they're more the corrective than the signal. Um, they're they're the kind of subdominant force and not the dominant force. But um, I think probably in most discourse, um, and unfortunately this includes, I think most academic stuff, um, Theory um, to a large extent, research um, people's production of representations is not neutral. It's not trying to be as accurate as possible. Um, maybe this is the kind of consciously stated goal, um, but I think it's really it's it's uh, tr- they're trying to transform the existing map in a large way, or they're trying to get something done with the representation. And I think basically it's it's pretty socially normal that people slightly exaggerate a ton of things constantly um, across almost all realms of social interaction. Um, and part of that just looks like manicuring your speech and trimming off the bad parts of, of like your personal representation. Um, you know, I, people just don't represent neutrally. They represent strategically and uh, they'll edit out the things that they don't think will advance their interests and they'll emphasize or even exaggerate the things they think will. And, uh, I think that's pretty crucial in trying to understand, uh, people's motivations. And, and, you know, I think you can even put like a pretty noble spin on it and say that people feel like there's some mean consensus, there's some um, average sensibility in the discourse, and they think it's wrong, or it's slightly biased in a certain way. And so they're exaggerating in the opposite direction to twist the stick um, in the mud, as as Bordeaux puts it. Um, you know, they're trying to essentially how people bargain or haggle, they're trying to, to move the center of gravity. But uh, I think that has to be taken into account if you're trying to actually understand discourse, um, because if you take these things as in a vacuum, neutral representations, I think you actually get the wrong idea. Um and, and Latour talks a lot in, in why critique has run out of steam. I mean, he's part of the reason that I am so enthralled with uh, the discourse as a battlefield or discourse as as war metaphor, along with Bordeaux's work. But he talks a lot about how many people uh, misunderstood his work and his peers' work as an assault on objective knowledge. I don't think that's purely because people are bad readers, though they are, and I'm sure that's part of it. I think it's partly because um, people constantly, I mean, I've called it in the past an and, and retreat way of being. Some subsets of this kind of mode or approach, I think, are the Motton Bailey or Daniel Dennett's Deepities. But people, I think, are always kind of trying to make their position seem stronger or more uh, incisive or uh, more radical than it really is. Um, because saying, you know, trite, moderate things that people already know, um, that's kind of seen as low value or low novelty. And I think there are all these reasons that essentially the post-structuralists maybe downplayed their allegiance consciously and unconsciously to an objective reality, even if at their core they weren't always disputing it. Um, They weren't totally upfront in seeding what, you know, uh, maybe realists or um, more science-minded people uh, would have wanted them to seed, which was that there was an objective reality below all the social construction um, and I think there was a lot of room for potential agreement between the, those two camps and the so-called science wars that, for whatever reasons, maybe the just natural incentives of a field, a Bordeauxian field, um, didn't get talked about or didn't get emphasized or got lost in, in all the kerfuffle.
0: Agreed. And I want to take it down to a specific example I've seen play out not once, not 10 times, but hundreds of times, which is someone gets sick and they try to figure out what got them sick. There is basically no good way to do this. You don't know enough about the mm-hmm. bacteria you were surrounded by to do this on average. Now, it's, sometimes you can, right? You can have a stomach ache. You go to a new restaurant. You can be like, okay, my prior is pretty clear that that's from the restaurant because I don't usually get a stomach ache like this. And this was the thing that changed. You still don't know, but you can have higher certainty. But almost everyone I talk to who does this is like, yeah, yeah. It was, it was that person, and uh, they were kind of sniffly. I think it was what happened there. And I think one of the reasons why this happened with science and with literature is because these things became incredibly load-bearing onto the notion of truth, and then they had to solve lots of problems that not only are they incapable of solving, are fundamentally unsolvable. You can have some kind of model of what you think happened, but you just will never know if you're really right. The same way you know, we model each other, you know, especially in intermittent relationships like with your partner. And you have this idea of what they're thinking approximately and whatever, but you really don't know. And 10 years later, they can say, actually, you know, when this happened um, and I was disappointed about this, I was actually thinking about, it really bothered me because it reminded me of this one time in our relationship, you did this other thing. It was, you know, they can have this entire mental chain of what's causing their emotions and you can perceive their emotions yeah. and you can have your own model of what's going on and it can be partially right. But you'll never verify all of the cases. And even the person themselves, I don't think, is actually has access to all of this information. So I think one of the things is that people are constantly looking for certainty and for explanations to coordinate around. And a lot of those explanations are fundamentally just unfindable. You can't actually really get them. And so people will misuse the machinery of the day. And most of the time, there's nothing really wrong with the machinery, the intellectual machinery people are using like science, um, or like, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing a psychological study. But the way a lot of psychological studies are used to kind of, you know, prove generalizations, as in, you know, uh, Yarconi's the generalization uh, crisis is just untenable. And there's no way to get any kind of intellectual machinery to do that. But it's something that people will naturally try to do. And I think this kind of gets into this conundrum of, any intellectual machinery that becomes popular enough almost necessarily becomes, in square quotes, wrong in a way that's hard to stop.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yerconia is a great example there. And, I mean, I, I think we keep coming around to this idea that uh, a lot of this stuff is about coordinating. Um, I want to push you, though, because uh, you you use this a lot. I think it's one of your preferred ex- uh, examples, or not examples, sorry, explanations And I think it's right in some ways, but I think it's a little hand wavy and I want you to get a little more specific about, uh, about the, about what coordination actually looks like and, and, and why people are trying to coordinate in, in a certain situation.
0: Sure. Let's see what them. Okay. So I was actually just seeing people talk on Twitter about long COVID and if anyone's read anything about long COVID, they've seen that some people are like, wow, long COVID is affecting so many people. And some people are suspicious that actually long COVID is really a symptom of lockdown. And there's some evidence that a bunch of people Mm. who claim to have long COVID probably never got COVID. Mm -hmm. And so what I saw recently was this article, like a scientific article paper. I don't think it was published anywhere. I think it was just a preprint that was like, oh, Definitely some of long COVID is probably caused by lockdown rather than anything else. And then there was someone tweeting about it saying, I really hate this person suggesting it. And it scares me because I think that people who have long COVID won't get be taken seriously. Yes. And so I think there's this problem where I don't think we have enough information to really know anything really clearly about long COVID. It would be a little bit crazy to me if lockdown didn't have symptoms. Yeah. So I think that has to be on the table. Right, But I think there's this way in which people need a kind of working theory to coordinate policy around now and to coordinate what kind of science is going to be funded. And it's not even like the grant agencies, just, you know, peer review and what's considered good and what's considered cool and yeah. what's considered to make sense. And what's the basic assumption that you're allowed to work from for your hypothesis or for your evidence. And so I think that's a place where you really need to coordinate. There's not enough evidence. And so essentially narrativization gets pushed into the mechanism of science in a way that isn't quite, you know, what you might call like pure science, but I don't really believe in that as a thing. It's just not fundamental to the mechanism of, you know, falsification-based science, which is only a very narrow space of what we actually call science today. But by expanding what science is to this large region of things that require us to make assumptions in order to socially coordinate, it's kind of impossible to be science as right, As people claim science is like, you know, science is self-correcting and it'll always be right in the end because we're trying to coordinate so much knowledge into science.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, that's actually a really good example. And um, I it's unfortunate that I have kind of pushed myself into an echo chamber, uh, as we all have. Um, But my filter bubble on Twitter and stuff, you know, is largely, uh, you know people who who agree with me and, and my bias on these things is that um, first you figure out what is real and that gives you the best course of action. And I think one thing that your example touches on is that that is maybe not a standard way of thinking. And I think a lot of people have oftentimes either gut feelings or just think that essentially that there is something that is important period. And then, uh, finding, you know, science or, or theory or whatever it might be, um, these kind of inquiries into, uh, explanations, those are only instrumental or they're justificational. They're, they're about getting to that end state. And I think this is, uh, why the kind of words as decision rules frame is interesting. You know, um, as we've talked about with hazard and, and other folks, um, you know it it matters quite a bit whether you categorize something as manslaughter or murder because uh there's massive disparities in in the entailment in the the kind of punishment or the effect of that classification and similarly you know I think people basically see uh with the covid situation you know uh what what the kind of scientific consensus on uh, long COVID is is going to end up determining you know social or governmental support, whether insurance covers it, all this kind of stuff that matters to people who have long COVID, um, or believe they have long COVID, and uh, and anything that you know disputes uh, the 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 reality or the the vision of reality, the narrative that ends up with you know positive effects for those people is a threat. And I think I can, I can empathize with that a bit. I just think that at like a big picture social level, um, it's a recipe for disaster because uh, you end up basically entertaining special interests instead of uh, trying to... And it, it obviously ends up hurting people as well because if a certain group thinks that the best thing for them is X and it's not actually, it's actually destructive or, or counterproductive for that group, um, then it's actually not uh, kind in some sense to entertain their their, their vision of reality and and go with it.
0: I agree with what you're saying. And I think there's an interesting thing here where one of the problems is this frame of let's figure out real what's real and then decide what needs to be done is often in itself used as a social coordinating mechanism for certain people with certain interests. Right. And I think actually, you know, that's a lot of what I see in a lot of, subgroups that fancy themselves as kind of like intellectual renegades, this idea of, look, we're going to get a clear view of things and then kind of decide. And I think, you know, there's that uh, sub stack that's kind of trying to be this image um, run by Yashua monk. I think it's called persuasion. Um, and I think that they very much have this aesthetic of like, we're going to give you the facts that it is. And then we're going to give you our opinions. And that's, you know, how you do real thinking. And it's not even necessarily that I disagree with that. It's just that, the people who would join a group like that would join the group if other people there agree with how they view reality in some sense. And if you don't, it's gonna be very difficult to interface in that group. And I think because of that, it's hard to sell that frame on its own because it's already entrenched in sociopolitical power dynamics that if you give into that, at least in the short term, even if in the long term, let's say we would really objectively optimize things, which I don't believe either, to be honest, Um, in the short term, certain interests are going to be favored because of what that group or these groups believe reality already is. And it doesn't mean I fundamentally disagree with that strategy. I, I think I mostly do agree, but I generally don't consider myself a member of any of these groups that purport to kind of be heroes or champions of this method because I tend to view them as actually kind of laundering special interests as kind of most groups do.
1: Hmm. I mean, this, uh, it's funny. I mean, this has been a bit of a, a Twitter kerfuffle. Um, I think folks like, uh, uh, Amit, uh, Jacob Falkovich, I think his name is, uh, and Aaron Nuring. I recently saw gotten a little spat over this kind of idea of whether at the end of the day, like less wrong is promoting special interests and is involved in the culture war or whether they have managed to stay neutral. Um, I don't know. I think, I think actually being rigorous about those kinds of questions would require really grounding your terms and really doing, uh, some kind of serious survey, which I think, you know, again, gets back to the signal corrective idea of like, which, which side you take on a question like that, which is very abstract, um, I think has more to do with whether you're trying to push back on groupthink or participate in groupthink, whether you're trying to, uh, you know, uh, qualify or, or correct a, an ideology um, than it does with, you know, and some kind of connection to to reality, because most of those, pretty much everybody has such a limited slice of data, um, and they're working with such vague and nebulous terms um, that I think you're kind of bound to get into disagreement, which, you know, to me, I mean, one of the most interesting questions, I, I don't want to speculate too much about why John Nurse wrote the uh, Signals and Correctives essay, but I mean... I think a big part of it is, you know, why do people who would agree on the details end up taking different sides on things? And then a second question, why do people uh, who ostensibly have, you know, a consistent set of beliefs end up taking different stances depending on who they're arguing with? And I think both of those kind of point in this general tour epistemology direction that we've been talking about in terms of, you know, representations and beliefs um, not being neutral but but being moves in a game that are essentially trying to change the state the game state um, but maybe here is a good point where we can kind of transition to talking more about uh, discursive games and talk about uh, what I kind of called the n plus one principle and then very similarly what you called the one pillar at a time rule I think the basic sketch is that
0: when you're arguing that something should be different or something in the current, Conventional wisdom is wrong, or something in a current system needs to be different. You don't fight multiple different aspects at once, and if you try, you usually lose. It's just a bad idea, and there are many reasons you could point out for this. You could say, you know, it's hard to find a two, try, hard to fight a two-front war, or there are lots of strategic reasons. But I think it's actually bigger than that. And I'll use an example from math, which in math there are two very famous fields: ordinary differential equations. And partial differential equations. And partial differential equations are really just differential equations of more than one variable. But it's an entirely different field because our ability to do a lot of math on things of one variable is just much bigger. And you know, I'm sure all the math people will kill me and, and tell me there's so many things that are different. And there are different things. But the basic definitions really are what I what I just said about uh, the difference between the fields. And I think one of the big reasons you see this again and again in science and in politics, is that when you're giving an argument about something, people just aren't that good at juggling multiple things. And most of the time, if you're trying to convince them, you want them to be juggling multiple reasons why one thing is right, rather than multiple different things that all need their own interconnected reasons because it's just too much cognitive load. And this reminds me a lot of um, what's called Neurath's Boat. Um, and Nurath has this quote. We are like sailors who on the open sea must reconstruct their ship, but are never able to start afresh from the bottom. Where a beam is taken away, a new one must at once be put there. And for this, the rest of the ship is used as support. In this way, by using the old beams and driftward, the ship can be shaped entirely anew, but only by gradual reconstruction. And I think that's basically how most cognitive machinery works, how most theories work, how most political arrangements work, that we simply just don't have the ability to support change in multiple different places. Otherwise, the entire thing falls apart and other people take advantage of it to become something different.
1: Yeah. What? So how do you think this fits in? So another, um, another genre of corrective or of update uh, of a theory might be something like, uh, maybe there's a lot of kind of you know discourse on language that we think is somewhat valuable, but is too positivist or too formalist. And so we want to basically refactor it and go through the entire thing and, and basically build it up as if it was built on a pragmatist foundation. Um, do you see that as similar or do you think that's like a meaningfully different process? Um, do you think that's even possible? No, I,
0: uh-huh. I think that's right. And I think one of the reasons why it's almost necessarily right It's because I don't think we have any other option. We're talking to people who have a certain culture of how they think about language and I don't think we want to just do it alone. I don't even know if that's possible in a meaningful sense. I think we would just end up taking other people's frames kind of unconsciously unless we really isolate ourselves. And so I think the reality is people are always kind of breathing in everybody else's ideas and you just end up letting them into your head And so you kind of are automatically in this uh, Neuroff's boat situation. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why we get stuck in certain fields is because in some cases, right, there's no easy way to jump into something completely different. And so a field can kind of hit a dead end. And maybe it's not really a dead end. Maybe you need a certain activation energy or to discover something that allows you to go somewhere else. But I think there are cases where you need to start completely from the beginning. But in reality, it's so uncertain whether that'll work that it basically only happens naturally. Sometimes, you know, some other field will come and just do what another field wanted to because it was capable of doing that. But I think it's very rare to design that situation. And if you have designed towards doing something, you're kind of stuck in an arrest boat situation no matter what.
1: Yeah. I, uh, hmm. I wonder how all this ties into, you know, I, I think both of us uh, are, are in agreement or feel the same that information theory is just a recurringly great kind of metaphorical frame to ground uh, a lot of the stuff in. And I'm I'm always reminded of Murray Davis's idea of the interesting, which is this idea that, you know, things that are interesting have to, um, you know, affirm most things that the audience believes so that you're all on the same page. But then crucially, it has to subvert something key. I don't know. I, you know, and, and obviously in kind of information theory, um, there are some parallels, um, the difference that makes a difference.
0: If you kind of buy a very deep information theoretic view of language then you're always communicating about what's different from what the other person predicted right like I'm giving you the real information I'm giving you is whatever you couldn't have predicted even though inherently you could have predicted kind of some percentage of what I'm saying and I don't mean percentage like every other word so much as like oh well they're going to say something in this range they're going to say a noun next but what now? And does it have special implications that I wasn't expecting? And do I have to go back and understand why that was the case and and what it's pointing at? And I think one of the kind of big issues in the literature and in trying to shift the linguistic literature is deciding what kind of bit of the literalist, formalist agenda to change because as it is, it's kind of a slick machine that, you know, does have a kind of holistic explanation of certain things. I don't think it addresses the real challenges most of the time. And yet, what do we do in order to kind of say, oh, but there's this kind of one salient bit that I can flip and you'll agree with me and it kind of allows me to take the next step forward. And I think that's the part that's actually the least studied um, from an information theoretic lens, which is, yes, I want to say something that is, um, you know, has information content, isn't perfectly predictable, Um, and isn't completely random. But I think the reason for that is subtle and isn't well modeled by any of the models that I've seen of, of communication, which is that when you communicate something new, you want it to cause the person who's listening to kind of come up with a slightly new model in a way that you could have predicted. So you basically want to be able to model their thinking process and say, Oh, but now they're going to think this way because they kind of have to, to explain what I just said. And that's like the key to a lot of humor, right? Like there's that classic, um, I think it was a British survey that tried to find the funniest joke. And this was the joke. Um, so someone calls uh, 911 and he's like, oh my God, oh my God, I think I, I, I'm, in, I'm in the wilderness. I was hunting with my friend and, and I think he's dead. And the 911 operator says, calm down, just before you do anything, make sure that they're actually Mm -hmm. dead. And then you hear a bullet and it's like, yeah, yeah, okay, they're definitely dead now. Um, And the point there is that the person has to remodel what they're saying, right? It's not just that it was surprising in a certain bandwidth Mm -hmm. of surprising. It was that something in the model flipped. But I think our modeling of internal models is incredibly poor right now. And it's because they're complicated and they rely on a lot of details. So I don't really know where to go with that, but I think there's this issue where we have to find probably an experimental situation, or at least a place where we can observe this model living behavior and reliably predict it in order to take the next step past formalism.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this ties into where we started this whole episode, which was how situated meaning is. But the reason that joke works is because, uh, I mean, the make sure that they're that they're dead. Um, the ambiguity there that you know the operator feels like they don't have to control that ambiguity. They don't have to oh, you know overtly specify further what it is they want uh, the guy on the phone to do because there's kind of an obvious course of action. Um, And, you know, it's probably not even conceivable to the operator that another human being that they're talking to would, you know, make sure somebody's dead by shooting them. (laughs) Um, That's so foreign and far away from the goals, which are obviously like keeping this person alive or figuring out, you know, uh, how to maximize both their survival chances. Um, And yet,
0: if you hear that mm -hmm. joke, or not even the joke, just that line in The Godfather, you know the implication and it's the implication that becomes clear Mm. was understood in the joke.
1: Yeah. A hundred percent. Uh, you know, I think there are similar jokes about, you know, stuff like, uh, in case of fire use, use stairs. Um, I, I, mean, all this, we're kind of just talking about what linguistic ambiguity is at this point, but, uh, I think things are disambiguated by context and goals, which is in some sense to say the game state up to that point, the history and the, you know, the affordances, the constraints, and then, you know, what people are trying to accomplish. Um. So it all syncs up. I think uh, I'm starting to fade here, so maybe, maybe this is the end. But is there anything uh, you think we should address, talk about, get to before no, it's over?
0: I think that's all true. I'll just add to that, you know, like like you're saying, this is just linguistic ambiguity. And it's been talked about by thousands of people, probably tens of thousands of people, perhaps even hundreds before. But I think there's another part of it we're trying to point at, which is that it is a lot of intertwined history that creates these contexts and exactly like the example of you and Nico in the airplane, once there's a lot of established context, moves can be made like this that are very complicated, that they're almost impossible to explain to other people, right? There's lots of kind of like intercouple communication. You just can't explain. But one of the reasons our theories don't deal with them is because they're so hard to explain. And I think that's the biggest issue about why discourse is a game. Because there's this process of legibilizing things in order to make them real to the theory, and we don't know how to basically force that to map back to reality. And I think that's, you know, the big issue with formalism, and the big issue we have with trying to push things forward into a different direction for thinking about communication and games. And I think, you know, that's uh, the challenge we've set before us for the next decade.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and like you're saying about intimacy, I mean, if we think like, what is an institution? I think an institution is uh, like a, a training or sorry, I should be more specific. What is like an academic institution? What does it mean to become institutionalized um, uh, or institutionally initiated? Um, and I think so much of that, right, is is Getting familiar with the key players, the kind of shared reference points, things that you can be confident that other people have in their mind as well. So you sync everybody's mental models up, and you have a state of common knowledge where you can kind of compressively communicate because you can reference something uh, very briefly, and and people will more or less know what you mean. Um, so maybe, maybe we could even talk about you know institutional games as the state of intimacy when the field is is closely synced up.
0: That's an interesting idea, yeah. We should really get to that. All right, I think this is good, and I think we have a a lot of content. Um, I'm Crispy Chicken, and remember, even if you don't want to play dumb games, you already are.
1: I'm suspended reason. I've been feeling a little self-conscious about this end ritual, but I do really like Crispy's term, the uh, literalist-formalist machine. So I guess I'll say, uh, remember... uh, Don't let the literalist, formalist machine get you down.